The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. I just grabbed my mic and I didn't mean to. I'm here with Daniel Markham. Howdy, uh, howdy, ho. Yeah, Daniel, we are going to be talking about code cognitive load today. Uh, which is not a term that I had heard before today. Kind of skimmed the article, and I, and that was about it. I was like, oh, well, this is going to be fun. I love learning new ideas and new things. And yeah, we were talking a little bit before the episode about code complexity and code cognitive load. And uh, yeah, this is one of those, I think, deeper concepts that, yeah, people don't really get into. But, you know, as you kind of talk through it, I'm sitting here going, yeah, this is one of those things that I don't know that I was ever able to put my finger on exactly when I was looking at code and going, wow, this is hard. <laughs> Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it, it is hard. A lot of times we struggle with things as programmers. We don't even understand what the hell we're struggling with. Right. You know, because we talk about it and it's like, OK, well, this this code is complicated or this code is hard to maintain or this code is, you know, there's a lot here to kind of get through and sometimes I just get to some code and, you know, I don't really feel like any of those really break down what the issue with the code is. And I just look at it and I'm like, this code is just hard, right? There's yeah. just something here that's hard. Yeah. You know, and you start talking about this idea of code cognitive load and I'm going, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what some of it is sometimes is this, this thing, this idea, you want to talk about what this is and then we can dive into what we're actually talking about here. Sure thing. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. You know, one of the things you do when you start start working in a new shop is understand, what, I used to call it the architectural conceits that are being used in the, the, the solution. So, you know, are we using some sort of, uh, are we using STL, using C++? What mm -hmm. sorts of patterns of sort of variables and functions are we using to deploy this solution? Right. And ideally, that's like one answer that holds true throughout the code base. Of course, <laughs> ideally, I'm actually Brad Pitt. Uh, but it's, yeah. <laughs> ideally, it's not working for most of us. Wait, you're not Brad Pitt? You look I, just like Yeah, him. well, from a distance, yes. I'm. I, he and I are like twins from like about four miles. If you look at us on like a right. tree on a mountain, yeah, we're the same and guy. And you squint. Oh, yeah, we're the same guy. Yeah, it's it's yeah. scary. When the sun's behind you. Yeah, it's like, it's well, we're both bipedal. Uh, that helps a lot. Uh, yep. So, so what you're actually doing here, I think... Uh, sort of gets into the topic I was talking about last week, and is that we have a very difficult time as programmers who are stepping back from what we're doing 
and looking at what we're doing from the outside. So a lot of what we do yeah. is sort of here, I'm programming, you know, here's the code, here's what I do with the code. And all this is well and good. And it should, it is as it should be, but we struggle quite a bit. We struggle with setting up the environments and mostly, well, it takes sometimes, gosh, up a week to just to get the environment going. But mostly when we're actually programming, we struggle with context switching and figuring out like, where, where the hell am I? And what what is this code doing in front of me? Mm-hmm. And I was writing the second book and I was trying to come up with as many practical examples as I could sort of demonstrate sort of information flow as you interact with the c- computer. And it occurred to me that nobody really looked at the number of symbols the programmer has to pick up when he goes to a method to change it, whether he realizes that or not, and manipulate to get the thing done, whether you're fixing a bug or you're adding functionality. Right. There is a fixed number of symbols. You know, it can be, you know, echo, hello world. It can be two symbols, again, a string and a mm-hmm. command, or it can be some series of you know, object.method.method, or it can be a bunch of function calls out, or it can use, it can vault. If you've ever done functional programming, uh, some of us bozos will put together things you look at. It's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and, and what's happening is basically you're looking at symbols on the, on the sheet and you, you just can't orient yourself. And a big part, especially with functional programming, is sort of orienting exactly what you're manipulating. Mm-hmm. And we don't run into that as old programmers because we have this beautiful thing called abstraction. And we put you know, object.method, we have interfaces we implement, right. uh, we have inheritance, we have all these sort of tools to do abstraction. The, the problem is, and I think old programmers don't realize this as much as functional programmers do, is that we can fake an abstraction layer a hell of a lot easier than we can actually write one. Right. So most of the things you use that are being sold to you and you're picking up as an abstraction layer aren't really solid abstraction layers. There's kind of a bunch of stuff people threw together because they were having a hard time and they decided to put it into sort of an object hierarchy with interfaces so that it would be easy to work with in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but that assumes that you're having the same problem that they have and that you have the same words for the problem that they're used and that your needs at some level, four or five levels down, is the same as theirs. And it turns out there's this huge bunch of it, sort of leaky abstraction mm-hmm. issues that come. Did we talk co- about this last time? I think we did. But the, the co-cognitive load basically is when you're solving something and you're using these, I don't know, 40 tokens on, in the method, right. how many symbols are you really sort of picking up to work with? And mm-hmm. for sort of immutable variables, simple answers, it's 40 because you're looking at 40 symbols. But for right. a lot of function calls out or a lot of libraries and templates, that number could easily be you know, 5,000. And I'm not saying that there's one right or wrong answer here. I'm saying that that's a static number that you, you can do static code analysis and determine. And that every time you pick up a function to write a method or go back and fix something, right. depending on the number of symbols, you're actually assuming a risk that all of these sort of error modes might not happen. Right? You just sort of, I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> and the reason we have to orient ourselves is because very rarely, uh, if you're doing a lot of new development, very rarely is it okay. And so you're having to sort of hunt through and figure out whether it's SSL 1.0 or SSL 2.0, which right. version HTTP do I need for the response object? You know, what's the appropriate client refer string? There's just all these things that you didn't think about simply looking at something like maybe web response. Mm-hmm. And my, my premise is, is that if you just identify the number of symbols you're currently using with your solution, whatever number that is, and track how that changes with how your functionality changes, 
you can keep an eye on how much risk you're assuming for people having to do all this sort of context switching and diving around every time they touch your code. Yeah. One thing though is, I mean, it, how do I put it? So one thing is, is the number of ideas that I kind of have to keep in my head, you know, and, and to me that correlates in some ways with the number of symbols that I'm dealing with, right? Because it's, you know, I've got a symbol for this, a symbol for that, right? And one might be a function, one might be a variable, one might be a value, you right? You kind of get these different things going on. But some of them I kind of take for granted, right? Like you, you're talking about the HTTP request or response. And if I'm doing web development, I just take for granted that it's there, right? And I take for granted that it's handled. And so, you know, those are all things that I make as assumptions. And so though I, I don't even count those, right? When I'm looking at my code, I don't even count that as a symbol that I'm dealing with, even though it may even be explicitly outlined in my code. Yeah, you're you're you're, so, yeah, you're explaining why this is necessary my metric to have. Right. You're, you're selling right. this for me, Chuck. Yeah. Right. So my point is, is that I don't run into this problem until my assumption breaks, right? Until I go, oh, oh, this is broken. Why is this broken? Right. And then I go look at my code. And then I go look at some of the underlying code that my coworker wrote. And then I go start looking at the framework code. And then maybe I go look at the standard library code, right? And then I eventually figure out, oh, the assumption was is I was using the HTTP library and this is using the HTTP2 library. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, .NET used to have two different libraries for doing web request response. And one had one set of functions and members and other had a different set. Mm -hmm. Depending what you wanted, you had to pick up either one of those. And it's, ah, it was just very Yeah, and you get that. That's super useful. This method doesn't exist. Right? Oh, yeah, there a, yeah, there was a JavaScript where I ran across a couple of years back. Was uh, this uh, this object does not have a constructor, and the the error message had you know foo equals new foo with a constructor in it. It's like it showed me that it had a constructor while it told me it didn't have a constructor. And then yeah. good, good luck trying to find where foo is in that web page somewhere. Else, you know? so, yeah, in Ruby, the bane of our existence is uh, no method for nil object. And it's like, oh, come on, right? And so most of the time you get a line number, right? So then you can go backtrace. Okay, so this thing right here is nil. And so you can kind of trace back through, okay, where did it not get set? But sometimes you don't even get that. And then you're like, what the? No! Yeah, and God help you if you've got some anonymous function stuck in there, yeah. the call stack somewhere or another, and you're going, right. ah, where is that? It's some, or, somewhere. Or it comes out of metaprogramming out of some library that you didn't even write. And so you assumed that you were getting something out of it and you didn't. And so you keep coming back to it. Well, I know that this library must be correct. And so therefore, this object can't be coming out of it null. You, you have, yeah, and you, I know you guys have all gone through this. You haven't really experienced pain until you have errors thrown at you from some <laughs> other asshole's library that doesn't appear that you can identify in the call stack that you think are your errors. It's like, holy shit, yes. what am I doing wrong here? I've, and you go back and you take things, is one plus one actually two? <laughs> you start questioning all of reality. You're like a Neo in the yeah. Matrix, you know? <laughs> I know Kung Fu. Yeah. I now, now I can fly helicopter. That's but right. The, yeah, the thing with CCL is like, dudes, it's easy enough to measure how many symbols you're having to manipulate to solve things. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But if you're not adding functionality, but you have 10 times the symbols, you've, you've really wandered somewhere, like assuming a bunch of risk you never had to take because by definition, you don't have any functionality. So why, why, do you, why are you making this much more complex than it has to be? 
So, so, so yeah, where's, yeah, where's the magic abacus in the sky that adds all this up for me? Well, I uh, actually in the book, I, I did a walk through the, of the, uh, the .NET reflector library. And there's, there's two ways of, of looking at the answer. Um, one way is to actually take the runtime code. Uh, C++ guys, you'll know RTTI and the various ways of doing uh, reflection and walk through and see, hey, where, where are all the little symbols at? And there's this really cool okay. um, reflection library in .NET to let you do that. Actually, there was a, uh, there's a, a, a tool I picked up off of GitHub. Just Google it. I think it's Skype or something like that. But basically, it just wraps the reflector library. It turns out that that's probably not the best. It's a good answer. It's probably not the best answer because really what you want to do is you walk through the ASC, FSET, the syntax tree on the, the code itself. And that that gets a little more gnarly and you have to get into the compiler library. And quite frankly, I just sort of bailed out at that point. Uh, but, you know, I think, I hope it was enough to demonstrate that these are things you can actually go mm -hmm. and compute. Yeah, but depending on the, the language you're working in, um, for example, in JavaScript, the AST is fairly accessible, right? They're good uh, STI libraries uh, or AST libraries. Um, the, the, the same thing with Ruby, right? They've got pretty good AST libraries that will break it down and give yes. you access to the abstract, abstract syntax tree. And, you know, then you can kind of go from there. So, but yeah, it still does get gnarly, right? You get in there and it's just like, you're looking at it crossways because it's, you know, it's not an intuitive left to right oh, yeah. clean think, layout, right? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I, I did the example of starting to compute this was that you run into all this crazy shit you never thought of. I think that people who have done lower level code think of this stuff. I like uh, boxing in .NET. If you've got an integer coming in, it's an integer until you do certain things. And then .NET has to pull it out of the heap and box it up as a, actually a number uh -huh. Uh, there's just this ton of things. If you're looking at division, of course, you've got to divide by zero error that might happen. Uh, right. No, like I said, none of these are bad or good, but there are risks you're assuming when you when you have that. I just want to get back to what you're talking about, how difficult it can be in some environments. There actually is a standard now, which makes it a lot easier. It's a language services provider standard. And they, I think it's been out about five or six years now. And by implementing that, it allows stuff like .NET to run in uh, sublime text or it's sort mm -hmm. of a, a universal way of dealing with the compiler from the outside. Is is that the same standard that they use for like Visual Studio Code? Yes. I And, and the, the reason they had to implement that was everybody wanted to do their own IDE, as you know. Right. And mm -hmm. everybody's IDE wanted to do sort of syntax checking and cool color code yep. brackets. And so it was just everybody, everybody doing a language, everybody doing an IDE all had the similar goal of the language guys wanted more users and IDE, IDE guys wanted more capabilities. And so thank God they've actually come out with sort of a standard for all that. Yeah, that makes sense. I've talked to the VS Code team a few times about those kinds of things, and I didn't realize that they had standardized that. That makes a lot of sense because nobody wants to implement that twice. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And that, and that changes. You don't have to, like, every version <laughs> yeah. of the compiler. Have to, oh, come on, yeah. yeah. It used to be uh, you'd pick up an executable and you'd actually kind of... <laughs> it used to be you pick up an executable and you could walk through the byte array of the executable trying to find the virtual function yeah. table. And then from there, find what you wanted to do. Uh, yeah, it also used yeah, to be... Yeah, you basically had to run the code. Yeah, we used to take down cave bears with stone knives as well. as uh, <laughs> Fun times, Chuck. Fun times. Oh, man. Oh, man. Okay, so so let's say that you go and, you know, you, you run one of these libraries in a reflector or, you know, something similar in whatever language you're working in, and you get this number, what does it mean? 
Well, it's 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 not a it's not a good or bad number. Um, it's the amount of risk you're taking in that in that code. And then the, there's rules to doing this. I go over in the, the blog article. Uh, the basic rule is you've only really got two metrics. You've got the method in front of you that you're looking at, and you've got the mm-hmm. compilation unit. And, and the reason why there's only two is because if I didn't make it only two, we'd start playing these namespace games where, oh, no, I've got a, <laughs> yeah, I've got a namespace over here. And it does so You don't have to look at that. It's only got 40 million lines of code in it. <laughs> and I can promise you it's fine. No, it's good. These are not the droids you were looking for. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, if I had a nickel for every time a, an architect or a library provider, uh, in-house architect or library provider told me, hey, don't touch that. It's fine. And then it turned out it was a piece of shit. Get it come back and figure it out. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Okay. Fine. Right. And then you have to go back to the guy and explain to him like there's something wrong. And you, you can never just say, hey, dude, this is messed up. You have to go, hey, you know, if you thought about the fact that integers actually can't divide by zero, is this uh <laughs> You're a really smart guy. I know you've I know you've considered this. Yeah. And, uh, and then you have to sort of walk in that way because uh, people get to yeah. owning their stuff really, really quickly and they get very defensive about it. Oh, yeah. 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 I've, I've had plenty of those conversations. So uh, how do I not get both barrels? Have you thought about... He is totally going to blast me. I'm glad I'm in public. Um... Yeah, I was in this program meeting once uh, where... <laughs> Where there's wonderful man, things like 80 people, uh, and we had the uh, uh, program manager there, and we, he was explaining how we we're going to use uh, physical boards to do information radiators, and uh, the details are important. But the thing is, is that there's this common error of, hey, let's do it this way. And so he finishes explaining, and uh, this person, this lady, nice, sort of timid lady in the back, raises your hand. Mm-hmm. She said, "Hey, why don't we do it that way?" He goes, "No, you're wrong." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we got to get this guy. So, I mean, he's just, this is not working too well for him. <laughs> but he, uh-huh. he did, he wasn't trying to be mean. He was just, you know, we do have a little bit of uh, Asperger's, uh, autistic things as technical folks many times. And he just, he was correcting an error. That's all he was doing. Yeah. Well, I, I think sometimes we just fail to see how some of that comes across. And the other thing is, is sometimes we really just get caught up in the problem. And we get charged up and yeah, we just do not see it at all then. And we, you know, then our overreaction just goes way down the path of where it should go. But uh, yeah, yeah just, uh, just, just be open to the, the idea that you may need to just stop and take a breath. One of the things I was trying to do both in the, the first book about how to find the right thing to build. And then the second book on like actually building right, building mm-hmm. well. Uh, is step outside the development process and sort of look at what we're doing, both as a person who does it and a person who's like, gee, why do you do that? And you learn a lot that you you never suspected before. As an example, uh, you were doing this interview sort of late morning. I thought about getting up this morning and, and doing a lot of coding and switching over to the interview. And I just can't do that. Personally, if I'm doing three hours of coding, I am in that Yes, no exception. Yes, you know, I, I get mm-hmm. this this groove of of logic trying to understand what the computer's doing. It, it it makes me a lot more brusque than I would have to normally. Right. Yep. Yeah. So it's it, funny that you. It, it's funny too because the context is different too. Just to add to that conversation a little bit because you know, so you did whatever you did this morning and then got on the interview, and because you're on the East Coast and I'm in Utah, and so I walked in the door from dropping my kids off from school came up the stairs and turned Daniel on so I could talk to him for the interview. 
right? And yes. so my context is completely different. I switched yes. from driving my car and talking to my kids and telling them I loved them at school to talking to Daniel about code. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so we're, we're coming at this from completely different, you know, thing we were doing just before the interview too. And that's just sitting around shooting the shit. The problem study after study shows is that, you know, we're asking programmers to mix up talking social interaction with coding and not mm -hmm. only are they having to orient themselves in the method with this code cognitive load, they're having to switch gears between, you know, Chuck doesn't handle typed exceptions. <laughs> so, you know, uh, very well. I don't. I'm a Rubius. Yeah. Uh, see, there you go. Yeah. S something went wrong, Chuck. Something. <laughs> <laughs> that method does not exist on the object you called it on. That's a type uh, exception for me. <laughs> oh, hopefully you're not using this in everyday life. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, is my car warranty? Sorry, this object, this method is not. <laughs> yeah, but but anyway. So I guess I guess the thing that I'm I'm running at here, and I'd like to kind of come back to is, all right. So you said, and and I'm going to come back to both the risk idea for a minute. You said that the number is just a risk score. Well, it's a risk score related to what? How do we know if it's a an acceptable risk score? Well, I don't I don't think there is an answer. I. I certainly didn't want to get into it for many of the same reasons we just talked about with the architect <laughs> telling mm -hmm. him it's, because I, you know, I don't want to tell you how much risk you have. I think if, if you have a team that's been in the same domain for two years and everybody does code reviews weekly, you can, you can handle health right. risk. I think the problem is, is that whatever code we write, somebody has to maintain. And mm -hmm. the more, I think the really killer thing is the more it appears that they have no risk, that they actually do, uh, we're just setting those folks up to fail. Yeah. So the other question I have then going back to the conversation we are having about this architect is, yeah, how do we, how, how do we bring that around so that we handle it that well, right? I mean, because some days you are going to have to code for three hours and then go talk to somebody, right? So what, what kinds of hacks do we have for that kind of a thing so that when we have that cognitive load and then we have to go and do something that isn't conducive to the cognitive load that we're trying to, you know, wind down from or whatever, right? How, how do we do, how do we deal with that? That uh, it sort of takes me to JavaScript. You know, JavaScript has a, oh, God, I can't think of a cap several different capability libraries you can use. And what we had over the years is the problem with, with web browsers is that they're all standard. And the beautiful thing about standards is everybody has their own. And so every, <laughs> I'm, I'm, that was a wonderful program. A friend of mine used that on me 15 years ago. And it's still true today. But yeah, so you'd have different browsers. And you'd have everybody was running standard, which meant that nothing ever worked the way you thought it would. And to fix that, some really smart fellow said, you know, actually what we should do is come up with a JavaScript library that just tests to see if you can do this or not. And mm -hmm. then if you can, go ahead and do it. If you can't, then we'll tell you right now you can't do it. You mean like Modernizer? Like Modernizer, there you go. That's just, I was drawing the blank on those. There's a couple other ones too. And so you test first. If you got a, a good answer, you continue forward. If not, you don't. Mm -hmm. That's been incorporated in, in some framework. Someone hasn't. So I think when you have that conversation, when you switch gears, you, you still have to think in coding mode. I Unless you're, I don't know. I would say Mr. Spock, but dang, he was still encoding all the time anyway. So really what you want to do is you have sort of test. And I, I got kind of got to that. Yeah. I'm sure you thought about integers. I'm sure you thought. And mm -hmm. 
check to see, does this person support capability of backing away from their own extraction layers? Right. I think some of that depends on where they just came from. So if they just came from a sort of a social interaction spot, you've got a better shot at that. If they just came from a lot of coding, maybe where they had to defend a lot of architectural decisions, they're going to be thinking in binary terms. And in that case, you fail. You can't always tell people their baby's ugly, dude. I'm sorry. I wish you could, but you can't. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, I'll tell you the one thing that my team does at work is we'll go into like a story estimation or, uh, you know, some other meeting. And when we're done, we, I mean, we pretty much end the meeting and, you know, we're kind of left to ourselves and we'll go, all right, five minute break. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and we need it. Oh, my God. Oh, for sure. Uh, one of the interesting hacks I've seen is like uh, kick everybody out of the building and you give them food. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what food has to do with any of this. I think maybe it's the rhythm of breathing and eating and, and interacting while you eat. But for some reason, groups of people eating together change gears from wherever they were to some new spot that they can then interact better. Yeah. Yep. I think it's just blood sugar going up. <laughs> <laughs> People feeling better. I'm thinking, it does. It makes you feel better. If I can get you guys a free lunch out of this podcast, I'm in it for you guys. <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah no, so it's, it's kind of, true. I, uh, in, I've been in a couple of large companies. I would uh, tell people, they were like, hey, how come you hit this architecture meeting, but you didn't go to the standards? And I'm like, well, you know, you guys have donuts. It's I got to be serious about this. I mean, there's relative imports and then there's donuts. And sorry, yeah. the donut thing wins. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I did code cognitive load with a bunch of other stuff. And it basically sort of looks at the idea of information flow between you and the computer, which is what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Sort of, we are social animals and we, we want to think the computer is a social animal. Uh, you know, it's the old joke. Why does this computer do what I'm, what I want it to do? And instead just does what I tell it to do. That's a great joke. But the problem is with the code cognitive load thing is you don't really know what you're telling it to do anymore. You think you do. So, so what, like I think I asked you before, you guys uh, use just lint as the uh, the metric to the static analysis tool. What kind of luck have you had with static analysis, Chuck? It depends on the team. So I've worked in the past on teams that, you know, we ran all kinds of linters that did like... So on, on my current team, we run RuboCop on our Ruby code. And what it does is it basically checks for things like method length and lines it checks for line length it checks for certain formatting things right so strings this way not that way kind of thing it checks for abc complexity and cyclomatic complexity and stuff like that so it does some of the kind of traditional static analysis stuff that you'd expect it doesn't do things like churn or i'm trying to think what some of the other static analysis tools i've used in the past are but yeah, you know, I've used some in the past that go into other metrics, right? Where they look at the code and look at other aspects of it. But yeah, and for the most part, you know, those metrics are fine. Sometimes I feel like it pushes us to write better code. Sometimes I feel like it pushes us to write code that conforms to linter. And sometimes I feel like it pushes us to add a comment that tells it to skip that particular piece of code because it really just, there's not really a way that we feel like we can improve it right it's like 
it's too many lines, but we're looking at it and going, if we break this up, it makes it harder to understand. And so we don't. Yeah, I think so. The, the old thing is yeah. first thing you do with your compilers, turn on all the warnings. Second thing you do is go into code and do a bunch of pragmas where the dang thing won't be fussing at you all the time. So you, you end up sort yeah. of fighting fighting the very tool you're trying to use to help you out. Yeah, but I think it's a net positive. It's just, yeah, some of it's it's just like, it's like, okay, you're telling me that this method is too long, but the reality is, is this method is a mapping method, right? And so instead of having two methods, you know, to map 16 things and, you know, the line length is 15, no, we're just going to tell it, no, don't worry about this one because it's pretty clear that that 16th line is fine. I was in a shop a while back. We had written some code and we um, were showing some guys outside our shop to sort of do a sort of a group review. Here's what we've done. Kind of. mm-hmm. And they were like, hey, you know, that's really good, but you're not writing idiomatic F sharp. I thought that was a sort of an interesting critique. I'm like, well, okay. I, I, I don't really care, but I'm not. I guess I'm not. I, I wonder, and this gets back to the idea that I'm trying to measure risk and not good or bad. I wonder, you know, if we sort of, we're framing most static analysis tools in terms of good or bad instead of, hey, you know, maybe your method shouldn't be 100 lines long. Maybe could, maybe you're doing a big switch statement and you got to do it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, maybe not. Have you thought about breaking it up? Yeah. So as far as idiomatic, I mean, because you know, we have idiomatic Ruby and ideas around what that looks like, too. And there are ways of writing things in Ruby that nobody writes them, right? You know, we all do eat dot each instead of, you know, doing while loops or anything, for example, right? I mean, nobody uses while. I, I guess I shouldn't say nobody, but, you know, the cases for it are, are pretty, pretty rare. I mean, you can almost always use dot each. And so the reason that you don't use while anymore, even if you would think, okay, I could use while here, is because or yeah, it's do while, I think, in Ruby. I can't even remember the syntax because I never use it. But Or, or while do. Um, yeah, but the reason is, is because at that point then, it adds to somebody's cognitive load because they have to look at it and they have to think about what it actually means. And so to that extent, idiomatic code decreases cognitive load. And so if you can, you know, double quotes versus single quotes, eh. I don't think that really matters as far as cognitive load. But some of the other constructs that are out there, right, if you're writing idiomatic code, you you are probably reducing some cognitive load for another programmer who has to come down along and maintain it later. I agree. And there's the old uh, error that people make with the while do where you do the check at the wrong spot and you do yeah. the four next, you have the off by one errors. Uh, there are a bunch of mm-hmm. errors you avoid. And this gets back to what we're talking about. If you're with a team that's been doing things in the same domain, right. Yeah, you're, you're locked in. And that, it's another good reason why, why code cognitive load is not a yes, no answer. If you can assume risk, if you don't ever have that risk realized, if you never actually chase it down, you're fine. Mm-hmm. It's all good. If I had to follow CCL up with something that was, um, I guess, a yes, no, good, bad thing, it would be how often does the programmer have to go to the stack? How often does the programmer have to go looking at the source or Googling now? Uh, and that would quite frankly, I think that would probably make a lot of people really angry because we spend a lot of our time on Google and, and poking around stuff. Yeah, it, and you know, it's it's interesting that you bring it back to that because uh, I remember, I, I must have been in program for like three or four years at that point. Um, one of my coworkers had a metric 
for how good the code was and it was WTFs per second, right? Or WTFs yes. per minute, yes. right? Yes. And it was basically a, how often do I have to stop what I'm doing and figure out what the code is doing? Yeah, that, that, that is really what I'm driving at, exactly what I'm driving at. I don't know if you've had the, the, the privilege of working a really good system where everybody's locked in on all the symbols, mm-hmm. but it's just a thing of beauty because the, the customer can, or user can come to you and ask you something and you can translate exactly what they're talking about directly into code and give it to them right there mm-hmm. and move on. You know, one of the things I did I was talking about in book one was, you know, if you have the product owner in the room with you while you're working, it should be possible for him to say, you know, that credit card processing, we need to do that better stuff on that. And you you say, hey, come over here, show, show me what we need about better stuff. And you guys talk, you write a test up. He goes, does other stuff. You make the test pass. It does better stuff. It's automatically pushed through the pipeline. You know, there, we have solved these problems on how to, how to develop mm-hmm. very quickly. But things like, oh, better stuff. Well, you need, really need to fill out form 642 on new features. And we'll put that in the weekly code, you know, backlog sorting thing. It's like, you know, once you, it's like a bug list. Once you start getting behind on that thing, it just never, ever really comes. Oh, yeah. You never, ever catch up. Yeah, the the backlog, I have a t-shirt that says the backlog is a lie, but I also want another shirt that says the backlog is an ulcer coming. Because, <laughs> I mean, it, it is, it's just, it's, it's stress. It's like, it's all this stuff. And it's this wish list that will never get fulfilled. And half of it is stuff that, you know, you're going to get done with, you know, a week's worth of work. And then, yeah, the backlog really is a lie because the other stuff is now either impossible or impractical. But yeah, one other thing with that is, you know, you talk about, yeah, the user can come in and ask a question or make a request and you can just do it. But the flip side of it is, and this is the thing that I hear programmers talk about a lot with like the best days, the best days where you just show up and and have, you know, you go home and, and you know, your significant other looks at you and goes, how was work? And it was like, oh, wow. You know, it was so good. It's the day where you show up and you had positive interactions with your coworkers, and you were in a flow state for like six hours. Oh, I, I know that. And it's a beautiful, thing. right? Yeah. And and yeah, and it's it's what we're talking about here, where all this stuff is just out of your way. You didn't get hung up on anything, and you feel like you just got a world of stuff done. And you know, you at the end of the day, you just knocked it out of the park. So there's a one way of looking at this is uh, this kind of gets back. I'm not honestly swear to God, I'm not trying to plug you. The first book is about building the right thing. Mm-hmm. This it really we're talking about you gotta have conversations at some point to get there where you're talking. And right. what you want to do is completely minimize those conversations so you can maximize that flow state. Right. And the problem is, first of all, the reason you get that flow state is because you've nailed down all the issues in your head before you walk in the room that day. And you can just have a conversation internally as you move along and you're, you're immediately moving forward. And it's just, oh, it's just, it's a great feeling. You feel almost like Superman. Like I can make this damn thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know if it's, oh, wow. Uh, and and the more, actually the more complex you're working and you've sort of got that flow state, the better you feel. It's like, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what we need to do here is actually override this method over here. And yeah. So yeah, what you want to, I think, but what we miss, maybe we know we just don't want to admit to ourselves is that every time we put off that conversation with the guy wanting stuff, whether it's to a backlog uh, uh, 
processing meeting or a bug list. Every time we put that conversation off, we're actually increasing the number of conversations we have to have later. Yeah. And that's a weight we carry around too. I, uh, we, I, I Not unusual for me to walk into the team that's got 400 backlog items. I, I've seen, I saw 4,000 once. Oh, but man. yeah, wow, I've seen some ugly things. And I, one of the first things I tell them is like, guys, pick a number, a small number. I would recommend 40, but 20, 50, I don't care. Prioritize those things and toss everything else in the trash. Yep. Because the only thing those other things are doing is providing overhead to all the other conversations you really need to have about what you're doing next. Yep. Uh, and and that it's sort of the, the uh, BA version of the architecture discussion. It's like, yeah, guys, I know you spent a long time on this. You standardize your form. and uh, But no, you're, you're really actually hurting things much more than you're helping stuff. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, you, you, you mix them, uh, minimize your chunk size. You try to increase your uh, feedback loop time, or I'm sorry, decrease your feedback loop time. Uh, you're shooting for that test. We talked about this last time. It tests that pivot point between the conversation and actual code working. I think the, the code cognitive load will bite you even worse because this is an issue that the teams outside the room are also facing, whether they realize it or not. So those guys who are the BA, what they call the three amigos who are going through the backlog and figuring out what to do, whatever, they're developing their own sort of set of whatever. That's it's called the three amigos. It's like, uh, I, who did that? Martin Fowler, maybe? So the, they're developing that three their, amigos. I was thinking Disney. But, uh, no, it's, what was it? The Steve, the, Steve yeah, Martin Martin, movie, Martin, Martin Short. Yeah. Martin Short, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chevy great. Chase, yep. Yes. So funny. Great movie. Uh, Chevy Chase uh, made some really good movies at that point and then just became a complete asshole. And after that, it was impossible to work with. Uh, but yeah, so those, those three guys are, are, they're having the conversations you should have be having, but they're yeah. reaching a different conclusion than you would naturally reach. So what, what then happens is even more painful as they come into you to have this, they, they present the, the, the backlog to you with, with all this language. And hopefully you, you talk about it informally, but they have their own sort of nested things and shortcuts they've been using. And they've been in their own flow state for, for, for you know, prioritizing, getting right. saying uh, back. And that's not your flow state. So you, you're having to do this. Okay. I'm currently God of the code. I got to stop, come down from Mount, you know, Zeus, I uh, come down from Mount Olympus. And we did this yesterday. Figure out, <laughs> on my team. figure out just what the hell you're talking about when you say better response time. No, that that was it, it's so funny. And so we're working through this new authentication flow because we're actually porting an app from old technology to new technology. And you know, so they come in with this new design, and we we didn't even get past accepting the terms of service for the new app. And you know, and there was a whole bunch of what are you talking about? And then, and then from there it was, okay, well, what about this? Cause we've got to be able to, you know, do you want us to handle this or do you, you know, Oh, well, we're just going to ignore that for now. Okay. Well, you've got interface for it. Are we going to not put the interface in then for it? Okay. Okay. Well, what about this other thing? Cause you've got interface for it too. Oh, well, we don't know about this. Okay. Well, the old app has this in it. <laughs> you thought you about know? whether you and, still want that. Yeah. And so it's, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's not that they didn't do their job and it's not that we're trying to complicate things. It really was that, you know, this all needed to happen in one one yes. conversation and, and it thing, didn't. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on 
figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Yeah, the thing is, is that, and, and you know this, there's no way you can sort of pick apart their brain to figure out all the answers. No. You, you know that there's a million things you have to find out, but you don't know what they yeah. all are. So you're just trying to go down a list. What do you think about this feature? Do you think about this issue? And, and you're missing stuff as you go because you're not a computer. You can't remember the code. You remember parts of the code. Right. Well, yeah. the other thing is, is that they're up there over on Business Hill. And we're over here on Program Hill. And we're on the cell phone. And I'm saying, look, from here, I'm seeing the, the town and it looks like this. And they're going, yeah, but there's a traffic jam over here. And I'm going, I'm not seeing a traffic jam. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So then they're trying to explain to me the car fire that's over there and what we need to do in order to make sure there aren't any more car fires. I worked with the Java team one time and they'd been going for about a year and a very similar situation. They, if you talk to the business side, hey, we told them what to do and God, they're just a bunch of short sticking the muds. They keep having a bunch of questions. And <laughs> those dang developers are just, they just can't take an easy answer. They have to make everything complicated. But so they start working with the Java team and they're like, well, no, no, we didn't get the answer here. We didn't get the answer there. And I, I finally reached the point where I was able to go back to the business and show, no, wait a minute, guys, this is this is wrong. Your impression of what's going on is not correct. And I just, I'll never forget this. The guy told me, well, you know, actually, they're just a, a test team. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we wanted to see if Java would work in the current framework. So we brought in a team to, to implement a Java. I'm like, well, didn't you tell the team? Well, no, we didn't tell the team that because then they would know that, <laughs> like, oh my God. So you brought these guys in to fail, which might be fine. I don't know, but you didn't want to tell them because you were afraid that they would fail. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it was like a year's worth of stress for, for nothing. They, they were, and it, not only was it for nothing, they could, could have been asking better system-wide questions and learning more about the answer to the question than they did uh, by simply struggling yeah. away, trying to get the, the stupid backlog done. Yeah. Well, one of the best things that I ever did as a programmer, at one point, we had a product owner that was super frustrated. It was actually a client. Now that I think about it, it was a client when I was freelancing. And I said, okay, we're going to get on. I'm going to share my screen, right? Because they're just frustrated. They're like, why can't you just make this work? Which is like the worst phrase ever. Just make it work. And so I sit them down and I'm like, okay. I'm like, look. You know, I, I understand you're frustrated. I understand why you're frustrated, okay? But I just want to walk you through my process so that you understand what I'm, you know, what I'm doing, right? Yes. And so we sit down and I'm like, all right, so I'm going to build out this feature that you're telling me you want built, okay? And so here's what I know you want, right? And they're like, yes, that's exactly what I want. And so I sit down and I start building it out. And I'm like, okay, so I've got these pieces here, but what goes here? You know, there's this right here. What goes here? Oh, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. 
And I'm like, I know. But the thing is, is when I'm sitting here with the screen in front of me, I have to know that because it won't let me just not have anything there. Or if I don't put something there, then it's going to fill it in with this, right? Oh, well, I don't want that there. Okay. And then, and then, you know, okay. So now we've got this stuff in place. Now you want this button here, right? Yes. And you said that when I click it, you want it to submit. Okay. Well, when it submits, what exactly is supposed to happen when I submit, right? Do you want it to show up here? Do you want it to show up here? Do you want it to show up here? Like, how do I know that it did the right thing when I submitted it? Oh, right. And yeah. so they're thinking just in the small interface, and I'm thinking about the whole system. And so as soon as they start seeing the whole big picture from my point of view, and I'm seeing the big picture from their point of view as far as like the business value for it, you know, we started communicating that way. That's when it started to really click. And so then, yeah, that, that's where it started to make sense for everybody. If, if you've done a, a good project with ATDD or TDD with a tight product owner that's tight with you, they learn very quickly. Oh, yeah. If, if there's not a test, it just doesn't, you, you won't get it. And I tell you, the sad thing is if you haven't been in a shop like that and you have this problem, oh God, why can't they just put this in a report somewhere? <laughs> if, if you do that, if you sit down several times, sat down and walk them through, well, look, actually, they're talking four different data stores. This is a batch store. This is actually on my database. This is in the lake. If you walk them through all that stuff, the only thing many of them take away, they'll be very kind. It's a good, it's a good thing to do because it lets them sort of feel some of your pain. But the lesson tends to be, you know, those dang programmers, they sure make things a lot more complicated than they have to be because it's just a simple number here that they pushes the button and it goes, it's like, yeah, I know you can use those three or four words and it, it, all we need to do is put the man on the moon. I mean, why, why have we already <laughs> done that? It's just a couple words, you know. If yeah. you go back, to, go back to JFK's speech, he actually says, I want to see before this decade is over a man walking on the moon. So he actually provides an acceptance test in his speech. I tell people, you know, he doesn't like come up with the 4,000 pound specs for the Apollo, the Saturn, Saturn V. Right. And he, he provides, here's an acceptance test. If you see this, it worked. And by providing that sort of freedom, then uh, people were able to kind of go out and solve it. The same thing happened to the space shuttle. The space shuttle was a really, really cool idea before everybody got involved, you know, putting their own little favorite thing on top of it. Yep. Cool. Well, I think we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Anything else that you want to jump on with this? Anything that we haven't covered with Code Cognitive Load? Nope. Code Cognitive Load has been a hoot. I, uh, I am blogging now at danielbmarkham.com. I was at danielbmarkham.locals.com, but now it's just danielbmarkham.com. I'm also trying my hand at doing some podcasting. Uh, hey, Chuck, I need to... Dude, you're on my list, man. We need to need talk to you. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so you drop by there. You can see some of the stuff I've done. If you have any questions, shoot me a, drop me a line. Happy to help out. All right. Sounds good. Well, yeah, we'll have this up in a couple weeks. And in the meantime, yeah. Awesome. Uh, real quick, I, I do want to, since this is a partnership between devchat.tv and Clean Coders, do you want to just let people know where they find your Clean Coders course? Yes. Uh, Bob James and I did a, uh, I think they call it F-sharp Follies over on cleancoders.com. It is a series of stuff. We had a, we had a blast. I learned a hell of a lot about how to how to learn functional programming because as watching, I guess, two of the best guys uh, I know kind of go through the process of moving over. This is where Bob did all the scale of stuff. Watching them kind of move over and shifting gears taught me about, okay, well, 
ah, oh, I see. So we're trying to do zombies here. It doesn't work. We're trying to do this here. It doesn't work. I told the guys later that, that they were my lab rats for the whole thing. So it's, if you're interested in sort of the issues you're running into, we, we, and plus we had fun, uh, head over to cleancoders.com, F-sharp volleys. Awesome. All right, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. We'll also have a link to the blog post and to Daniel's books. So don't miss that. And until next time, folks, Max out. Peace. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.